Good afternoon, listeners. This is Eric Robinson for Eat Scripture Podcast. So glad you could join me today. Today, we are very unfortunate not to have Gina Robinson with us, but she is off uh, gallivanting around the countryside here in West Texas. So you're going to have just me today. We are beginning a brand new series on the Gospel of Luke today. So I am really glad you're here because this is great, great stuff. And we have a little something to talk about here at the beginning that I think you will find very interesting. Um, Also, just want to get out of the way before we jump even deeper into this particular subject matter of Luke, that uh, we are just always thrilled that y'all are here. Thrilled to have you listening to the podcast. It helps so much to have you share it on social media or uh, with friends any other way. We just are very glad that you are listening, and we hope that we are provided, and we look forward to receiving any comments or feedback that we can get from y'all. Please feel free to do that through your podcast service. So you can leave it. also go to eatscripture.com to our website and find our emails uh, on the website where we would be happy to receive messages there also. So glad to have you here. Please re- leave a review if you can on your podcast service. That always helps the uh the message get out about the podcast to those who may not know about it and who may be interested. So with all that out of the way, really, really happy that you're here. And I think you're going to enjoy this, what we're talking about today, because this is a very interesting subject, this idea of who and why Luke is writing to who he's writing to and why uh, has become a subject for a lot of people to consider over the years, of course, because Luke is a little different in the way he presents his gospel. Right at the beginning of Luke's gospel, uh, we find out that he is writing to what sounds like probably a specific person, although that's not how it's considered by everyone. But in Luke chapter 1, verse Three, we find out that Luke is writing to someone who he refers to as most excellent Theophilus. Now, it could be that Theophilus is a uh, more of a symbolic title, a way of talking about God lovers, because that's what this name means. Theophilus means God lover. Uh, and so is that, is he just using this as a way of talking to all of those who would like to know more about Jesus, be interested in knowing more about Jesus, have a great heart for God, a great heart for what God might be doing through Jesus, and would like to really find out about it. So is that who he's written this for? Or could it be that Theophilus is an actual human person, uh, an individual? And for some reason, Luke feels that it is very important that he write his gospel for this person uh, at this time, or not just the gospel, of course, because he also mentions Theophilus in Acts 1.1, where he describes that he is writing a second volume, basically, uh, to his work, which is what he's doing. Luke has written a gospel, and then he has followed that up with a second book, which is about how the church after Jesus 
continues to expand throughout the Roman Empire. Now, the reason why this becomes in part very interesting to us is because um, what's happening to Paul in Acts. Paul is introduced to us um, somewhat early, I guess, in Acts, we could say. Uh, he's introduced to us late in chapter 7 where he is obviously it's okay with him that Stephen is being martyred at the end of Acts chapter 7 and we find that Paul is even watching over the clothes of those who are doing the killing so that they won't get bloody uh, during Stephen's stoning and those who are participating in that he's giving full you know giving his full weight of authority to what's happening, having no concern about the fact that Stephen is dying and being martyred for Christ. And so we see him introduced there. And then he comes up very strongly in chapter 9 and following. Chapter 9 being where we hear about Paul's conversion to Christ from being Saul of Tarsus um, and, and then becoming a Christian and then a little bit later, having a name change to Paul, it seems, somewhere maybe in about the name change, we just see it change. It's We stop hearing about Saul and we start hearing about Paul. And so then he goes forward from there. And we watch as he continues to talk about Christ and lead people to Christ and go throughout the empire speaking in both synagogues, but then also openly in city squares and so forth about this Jesus and who he is among Jews, among Gentiles. We, in, we get to the end of Acts. In Acts chapter 28, we find that Paul is under house arrest, which is very interesting. He is awaiting trial in Acts 28 before Caesar. He's allowed to live by himself with a soldier guarding him, chapter 28, verse 16. He's given great freedom to proclaim the message boldly for two years, even while he's under house arrest and has multiple visitors during this time, anybody who he entertains, anybody who wants to come to him. And that's in chapter 28, verse 30. And so we are left with a Paul who is awaiting trial. And this is one of the major things that that Acts has built us toward. And so to end with him awaiting trial and us not knowing what's happened to him seems like a strange place to end unless that's actually what's happening when, when Luke ends his gospel, when Luke ends his, uh, his second volume about Acts. And that leads us to wonder, okay, then, well, what is he writing? Why has he written this way? And who is this Theophilus that he's writing to? Now, there are some issues here, of course, because, and, and but they're not major issues. That's, that's kind of our, our thing that we have to realize when we're looking at this. The issues that we have that really arise that have um, given a lot of scholars pause about being able to date this in a way that leaves Paul alive is that the great majority of scholars put Paul's death in the early 60s, the great majority. And I think that's probably right. I think they're probably right about that, um, that we are probably looking at a 62 to 64 death for Paul under Nero's regime as he is just wiping out 
Christians left and right uh, as a way to um, as a way to really use them as a scapegoat for the burning of Rome and so forth. That was probably at his hand, that kind of thing. Well, this is becomes an issue for some, because if you have Paul dying, then then obviously, obviously, if Luke and Acts are written before Paul's death and Paul is still under house arrest in Rome at the time when Luke completes his second volume, then it has to be finished before Paul's death, somewhere in that, you know, before 62 to 64 area, if that's how you date it. I mean, nobody's going to, you know, it's going to be rare that you're going to find somebody who's going to say Paul is still alive after the destruction of Jerusalem. And so, and I think that, again, I think that would be true. I think that's extremely unlikely and much more likely it is that Paul has died during that same period, same era, era where Peter would have died um, when all the persecution in Rome against the Christians uh, was at kind of a fever pitch. Well, then some people go to places in Luke uh, particularly places where they feel that Luke is talking about the destruction, well, where Jesus is, not just feel, where Jesus is talking about the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And there are a couple of places in Luke that become what some scholars think very important and set a stage for the fact that Luke couldn't possibly be written before AD 70 because of the specifics that the Jerusalem's destruction is talked about with. And so we see that particularly they will point to Luke chapter 19, verse 43, when Jesus says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. He's saying that to Jerusalem. Okay. There's nothing in there, even with the words bear, set up a barricade around you, surround you and hem you in, not leave one stone upon another. These are things that Jesus, of course, as a, as a believer, that Jesus can be inspired to say whatever he needs to say at the time, can receive message from his father about whatever he needs to say through the Holy Spirit, however that works. But even if uh, it's not the... Even if he does, the specificity that we have here are the these are just the very things that you would expect someone to say if they were talking about the destruction of a great city at the time. Of course, there's going to be a siege ramp or a barricade put up around a great city whenever the armies come, come against it. The idea of talking about one stone not left upon another, this wouldn't be outlandish to say about a city uh, where there's going to be destruction, tear you down to the ground. All of these kinds of words, these are not these are not words that you would think of as being so specific that it's obvious that the writer had to have knowledge which he could only have gained after the fact. It is not even close to that. And that's even if you do allow that that a person can't predict the future, which of course I think Jesus certainly can do so as inspired through the spirit and by his father to do so, he will do so. Um, but 
even even a person who is talking about just the what they think is the imminent destruction of a city could easily use words like that at the time to talk about it. Verse 20 in chapter 21, verse 20 also in Luke, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you'll know that its desolation has come near. That's a prediction that Jesus makes. And then in verse 24 of the same chapter, talking about Jerusalem again, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time Gentiles are fulfilled. Again, none of this is so specific that you wouldn't expect it to be said long before the destruction of Jerusalem. So it's not like like Luke had to have this insight from AD 70 before he could write this down. That just doesn't make sense. And that's totally taking inspiration of God out of the equation. If you, once you've got that, if you really believe that God can inspire Jesus to say whatever he wants before the fact, then of course you have no problem with this. These are the places that scholars are going to point to to say, nope, Luke had to be written after AD 70. So let's take that off the table. That just doesn't seem to be accurate. He did not definitely have to uh, be be privy to exactly what happened to it, having seen what happened in AD 70 in order to be able to write what he writes. Now, the other factor is Paul, again, by the end of Acts, he's still under house arrest and I'm still awaiting his trial. And then I hear that Luke, at the, in Luke 1, 3, like we said before, is writing to this Theophilus character. Well, in Luke 1, 3, Luke actually calls him most excellent Theophilus. Now that is an interesting way to talk about this man. Most excellent Theophilus, chapter one, verse three. Turns out this most excellent phrase is used three other times in this set of books in Luke Acts. It's used three other times and it is specifically used for Felix, the governor in chapter 23, 26 and 24, 3 and of Acts. And then again in Acts in chapter 26, 25 of Festus, both men who are Roman governors who have the power to pronounce Paul innocent or guilty. That's who he uses this title most excellent for. Men in judge positions could easily be a title like we might say, your honor, when we're in a court of law. That's how this title gets used in these contexts. And so here's Paul, uh, here's Luke writing while Paul may well be in house arrest, under house arrest uh, in Rome. And so as he is writing, he is making a point to call this Theophilus, who he's writing to, most excellent. Could it be, again, that this Theophilus is someone who has something to do with the legal issues surrounding Paul as he moves toward trial in Rome while he's under house arrest? Because they would need a full accounting of what it is that this Roman citizen has been accused of, all that he's been through, why is he even coming before us. And so it makes perfect sense that Luke might be writing what are basically legal briefs here 
uh, to put before those who are most intimately involved in this legal case that's being made for Paul, this Roman citizen who's being held under house arrest. It makes perfect sense. And then that also explains some very interesting points that we find as we walk through the books of Luke and Acts. First of all, in Luke, centurions uh, play, Luke and Acts, centurions definitely play a significant part. We've got this centurion, these centurions who have great faith in Jesus. Luke chapter 7, 1 through 10 talks about the centurion who has so much faith. Jesus hasn't even seen anything like it in all of Israel. And he heals the centurion's servant um, because the centurion cares about him so much that he sends for Jesus. But he makes out like, Jesus, you're so much higher than me. Please don't come into my house. And he just has great faith that Jesus can do whatever Jesus wants to do. In Acts chapter 10, I find that It is a centurion who is coming to Christ, whose whole household comes to Christ. He has been a God-fearer for a long time. He loves uh, the Jewish faith and the Jewish understanding, and now he is putting faith in Jesus along with his household being filled with the Holy Spirit, Spirit, very, very obvious. And so in this way, the centurions are already playing a huge part in what's happening throughout Luke-Acts. Now, and there's other places too, and we'll talk about those in just a minute. Pilate, as we are watching Pilate in Luke, in Luke 23, 4, in Luke 23, 14, and 23, 20, and 23, 22, Pilate is very clear that he finds no guilt in Jesus and wants to release him. I mean, he's just going out of his way to talk about there is nothing wrong here. There's absolutely nothing wrong with this, that this man should be certainly executed, even in prison. I mean, there's just nothing uh, for this man to be held on. And Pilate, a Roman governor, is making a clear case that he believes there is no problem. Now, Luke is the only one who tells us that Herod Antipas, Herod, one of Herod the Great's sons, who is a king in the area at the time, that he can find nothing in Jesus to deserve being punished. And so whenever he evaluates Jesus in chapter 23, verse 15, he doesn't find a reason to hold Jesus. And in turn, and we find out in Luke 23, 12, that he and Pilate actually become friends over this very issue, that they had enmity before this day, but on this day over Jesus, they started being friends because they both agree completely that there's no reason for this man to be punished or held. And so they just want to release him. This is something that only Luke brings up, like he wants us to know that people in power, when they see Jesus coming before him, and when they see this Christian ideal coming before him, they have no problem with it. The powers that be, the Roman powers that be, even many of the Jewish powers that be, have no problem with uh, Christianity and can find no issues uh, to, to really bring any kind of punishment against it. Now, as we continue on in Luke 23, 47, a very interesting thing, thing happens for us where the centurion at the foot of, of the cross who watches Jesus die in Luke 
we are told he praised God, saying, certainly this was an innocent man. Now, that is something that in the other two Gospels, Matthew 27, 54, Mark 15, 39, we are told in those Gospels that what the centurion at the foot of the cross said was, surely this was the Son of God. Now, he easily could have said both things, and I have no issues with whether or not how that all worked out. What I'm finding very interesting is that Luke wants specifically to hammer in the fact that the centurion proclaims him innocent. That's the big deal. Jesus is innocent. So I have, again, a Roman authority there at the cross on the day saying, Jesus is an innocent man. Again, Christianity is getting exonerated of any possible issues uh, that could have been brought up, just being um, proclaimed not, not a problem. The, the man at the heart of it's not a problem. This is not an issue. We, so then I get into Acts, and I have various things in Acts coming up. Not the least of them is that in Acts 5, 34 through 39, this prominent Sanhedrin member and who is honored by all, it says, Gamaliel, stands up and says to the those who are considering trying to punish and squash uh, into oblivion this Christian thing that's starting to grow, he is telling them that they need to lay off and back up because if God's behind this thing, they're not going to be able to stop it. And if God's not behind it, it'll die out on its own. But they don't want to be found fighting against God. And so I have even very prominent and honored Jews who are part of the Sanhedrin are saying, leave this thing alone. This is not significant enough for you to become so bloodthirsty about and so desperately involved in. So Gamaliel, one of the leaders, has said that. I go to places like Acts 18, 12 through 17, and I find Gallio, who is a Roman proconsul, who's totally unconcerned to hear these things that the Jews are trying to bring against Paul. They try and drag Paul before his uh, judge seat and accuse him of all sorts of things. And Gallio, this Roman proconsul, very clearly says, look, this has to do with things about your law and how you guys govern yourselves. I mean, through your law, it's Jewish minutia. I don't have time for this. And there's nothing here significant enough for me to get involved in. Again, uh, a leading Roman saying, I can't find a problem here. And there's nothing worthy of Rome's major attention, nothing worthy of our great, you know, powerful deliberations to get involved in. This is not a significant issue. The Roman Tribune then, Claudius Lysias, in chapter 23 of Acts, verse 29, can find no reason to charge Paul with the crime deserving death or imprisonment. This is when Paul first comes under this Jewish authority that he's going to be under for quite some time now uh, throughout the throughout the rest of Acts as he is under arrest and moving toward Rome as to be moved before Caesar. This first one, this Roman tribune who he comes before, can find no problem with this with him at all. 
even though the Jews are accusing him right and left, he's he can't find an issue to really come down hard on Paul or this Christianity that Paul is proclaiming. He winds up sending him to Governor Felix, most excellent Felix, as we've already stated. Whenever he sends him to Felix, he writes about how he can't find a problem with him, but he's going to let Felix decide. So Paul is moved on to Felix. Now, when Paul is under Felix's care, or <laughs> under uh, kind of living under his authority in a prison-type situation, he's getting uh, definitely a modicum of favor and allowed the, all those who come to him can come and, and uh, have free access to him um, to help him out in whatever way needed, Acts chapter 24, 23. But then he leaves Paul in prison, though when he leaves, Felix does, because Number one, he, for two years, he's kind of been waiting on a bribe. We're told that definitely uh, in Acts chapter 24, that that's what he's wanted to happen, although it never does. And in Acts 24, 27, when Felix leaves office uh, here in this area, he does it and leaves Paul there in prison because he's wanting to do a favor for the Jews while he's on the way out, it says. But Luke is making clear to us it's not because Paul deserved being imprisoned. It's because Felix was trying to do a political favor for those uh, prominent Jews in that area, uh, boisterous or prominent Jews or however you might read that. The one who comes into office next is Governor Festus. And Festus takes that office. He starts hearing what all is now under his control and starts dealing with that. And he hears about Paul and listens to Paul and can't figure out a reason why this man is in prison. Then King Agrippa, Jewish king, who is would be King Herod's grandson, who is over this area in some way over the Jews, obviously, he comes and visits. Governor Festus and King Herod and or King Grip, King Agrippa, King Herod Agrippa, and Agrippa's wife, Bernice, all listened to Paul speak at one time. And in Acts chapter 25, 25 through 27, and Acts chapter 26, 31 through 32, all of them are very much in agreement that there is no reason why this man should be imprisoned. Festus is going to send him on to Caesar, but he can truly find no reason to keep him locked up. All of these, all of these together, the way Luke continues to hammer on this theme and the fact that Luke ends his second work, Acts, with such a cliffhanger where we are, if, if Paul had been executed by the time Acts was written, it would have been an ending to Acts that would have matched what we see in the first volume, Luke, where we have our prominent figure uh, wrongly condemned and executed at the end. And then God, God's power is at work and the gospel continues to go out through Jesus's resurrection, of course. The work of Acts would mirror that, where I, where I again would have 
a and it's my most prominent figure really in Acts, Paul, even though he doesn't appear until chapter nine, um, or significantly appear until chapter nine. But then the rest of the work seems to be about him all the way through chapter 28. It just hovers around what's happening with Paul. And I, I'm on pins and needles by the time I get to chapter 28. If he had already died, it would have shown how the believers in Jesus are continuing to experience the very thing that Jesus experienced. Don't be surprised when people who believe in Jesus are also accused like he was of being uh guilty of crimes punishable by death when that was not the case. And yet God still was at work in it. Luke could have showed how God was at work in it and had painted that picture for us of how God was surely going to continue to, to work this out as his, as the growth of his kingdom spread, that it might be accompanied by the very suffering that Jesus said, even death uh, for those who follow him. And yet God will continue to work out his glory to his glory all the things um that jesus predicted would happen for us so all of these things would be perfect if they were fulfilled this way but instead uh this is what we're left with so this is beautiful hope y'all are seeing some of the some of the incredibly well-written stuff in there we will be mentioning this a few more times i'm sure as we walk through this gospel together. I hope you've enjoyed it and I look forward to talking to you more. Hope you're having a great day and we will go on with Luke uh, starting in Luke chapter one the next time we're together. God bless.